Hello and welcome to Hollywood, the podcast that explores the lives of history's greatest storytellers. I'm your host, Key Whiskey, and this is the third chapter in our ongoing series called Writers Under the Influence, featuring authors whose lives and careers are, in the popular imagination, entangled with their relationships to substances. See this cute little vial here? It's crack, rock cocaine. Not only are barbiturates dangerous to his nervous system, but they destroy the inner resources. This is your brain on drugs. But the grim specters of heroin, marijuana, and cocaine... Oh, devil leaser. Burning weed with its roots in hell. If there is one lesson to take away from this first season of Hollywood, it's that any new drug hailed as a wonder drug is probably bad news. Like cocaine before it, a German pharmaceutical company introduced a new opiate, heroin, to the world as a miracle substance a non-addictive substitute for morphine addiction, and an effective treatment for respiratory diseases like tuberculosis and pneumonia. Early researchers testing heroin on themselves claimed the semi-synthetic drug made them feel heroic, which is how the drug got its name. In 1900, the Boston Medical and Surgical Journal announced that heroin, quote, possesses many advantages over morphine, it's not hypnotic, and there's no danger of acquiring a habit. But a mere decade after its debut and distribution in the public market, the wider medical community had to acknowledge heroin addiction as a real and growing problem. Heroin-related hospital admissions rose to alarming rates across America, prompting the government to step in and limit its usage to prescription holders only. Come the 1920s, heroin was made illegal altogether, but by then it was too late. Too many people had experienced the euphoric rush heroin was said to provide. The rush is from the rapid entry of heroin into the brain, where the morphine molecules produce pain-relieving and euphoric effects by binding to opioid receptors in the brain and spinal cord. Due to its chemical structure, heroin's effects are felt more quickly and more strongly than morphine. Many users claim they were hooked after only their first high. Heroin is administered in a number of different ways. It can be smoked, snorted, plugged, which is a euphemism for rectal insertion, or injected. Injecting is considerably the most dangerous. The risks of overdosing skyrocket once an addict reaches for the needle, and that's not to mention the risks of fungal, bacterial, and viral infections. Heroin is not for the faint of heart. According to multiple studies, the heroin user shaves about 42 years of their life expectancy, dying on average age 38. Despite the odds, the two narcotics-addicted authors we are looking at today lived improbably long lives. Hubert Selby Jr., author of Last Exit to Brooklyn and Requiem for a Dream, died at 75 when his lungs gave in. William S. Burroughs, author of Junkie and Naked Lunch, died at 83 when his heart gave in. It's a miracle neither checked out earlier, but we're sure glad they didn't, because while the rest of 1950s and early 60s America was busy mythologizing and chasing the American dream, Burroughs and Selby were bent on exposing the great failure of the American dream, 
as it shriveled in the shadows of post-war Brooklyn. They sought out the junkies, thugs, hustlers and whores and wrote about them, then dared us to read about them, to witness every gory detail. They drew on their own experiences with violence and addiction in order to write compassionately about New York's lowlife and the disease of the human condition in general. William Seward Burroughs was born on February 5th, 1914, in St. Louis, Missouri, as the second son of Mortimer and Laura Burroughs. He was named after Mortimer's famous enterprising father, William Sr., who created a fortune by inventing the first functional adding machine, a sort of predecessor to the calculator, and then founding a lucrative manufacturing company. Unfortunately, when William Sr. died at 39 from health problems, his business partner moved the company to Detroit and bought up most of the borough's family stocks, except for Mortimer's. Mortimer was only 13 when he inherited the shares, and he held on to them for many years, eventually selling them off right before the 1929 Wall Street crash. Mortimer was the only descendant of the inventor to significantly profit from the adding machine, and he did so mostly through his own good business sense. As a child of money, William Jr., or Bill, as he was called, had a comfortable upbringing living in a large brick three-story home on a quiet, tree-lined street. A maid, nanny, cook, and gardener also lived with the family. But the Burroughs were in no way snobbish. While they enjoyed all the perks of bourgeois life, they were never invited into the elite upper circles of the well-to-do. In fact, the St. Louis Wasps looked down upon the Burroughs family, considering them odd and unrefined. When Laura and Mortimer did receive an invitation to an event or a party, it was usually out of pity or obligation. The cold shoulders didn't seem to bother the Burroughs, however. Mortimer and Laura maintained a strong, faithful marriage and kept themselves busy with work. When the family fortune dwindled, Mortimer started up a plate glass business then moved into landscape gardening before finally settling down to run a gift shop called Cobblestone Gardens with his wife. Bill attended a local prep school, but didn't make any friends. He was deathly pale, tall and skinny, with a long face and constant sinus problems. His classmates found him strange and morbid, and their parents considered him sneaky and unwholesome. Even the school matrons were wary. One likened him to a, quote, sheep-killing dog. Another described him as a, quote, walking corpse. The only person Bill truly connected to was his mother. He was a complete and utter mama's boy. Laura Burroughs doted on her youngest son and adored his sensitive nature and wacky imagination. She believed she was a psychic and taught Bill about spiritualism, which was especially popular in the wake of World War I. Sometimes they would hold seances together to see if they could speak to the dead. As Bill got older, he found other methods to escape reality. He devoured dime store paperback novels about hard-boiled detectives, slick gangsters, and Wild West cowboys. The interest in reading led naturally to writing. Bill wrote his first story at age eight, called The Autobiography of a Wolf. That same year, he fired a gun for the first time and so began a lifelong love affair with arms. His father often took him duck hunting, one of the few activities that allowed Bill to bond with his father, who was really much closer to Bill's brother, Mortimer Jr. When he was a teenager, Bill was sent off to the Los Alamos Ranch School in New Mexico, 
It was an unconventional and hyper-masculine boarding school in a remote mountain location which taught boys in the Scouts tradition, providing them with a rigorous outdoor experience with a college preparatory education. Students were taught Latin, literature and physics alongside horsemanship, carpentry, hunting, fishing and knife throwing. In later years, during World War II, the campus was taken over by the US military and used as a site for the Manhattan Project, a code name used for atom bomb development and testing. Bill didn't enjoy his time at Los Alamos. He disliked horse riding, the forced physical education, and the values of the place in general. One of his hobbies, reading, was discouraged because it was considered an indoorsy activity for, quote, sissies. So Burroughs spent most his downtime writing instead. He began to keep a diary, which helped him manage a growing awareness of his attraction to some of his schoolmates, he knew he was a homosexual, but didn't know what to do about it, and he only ever developed crushes on heterosexual boys. So, he pushed the feelings down and kept to himself. Just after his 17th birthday, Bill's mother came to visit, and took him into the nearby town of Santa Fe for a day's outing. Whether from quiet desperation or simply for kicks, Bill snuck into a pharmacy and purchased a bottle of chloral hydrate, a hypnotic and a sedative similar to barbiturates, usually used to treat insomniacs or to calm patients before surgery. Bill had read about it in one of his gangster novels and was curious to try. He smuggled it back to school. A few days later, he accidentally took an almost lethal dose and wound up in the school infirmary. When teachers asked him why he did it, Bill replied, quote, I just wanted to see how it worked. The stunt nearly got him expelled. Bill started journaling more frequently when he developed an infatuation with one of the boys in his dorm. He wrote love letters, stories, and sexual fantasies. Finally, he worked up the courage to confess his crush to the boy, only for the boy to reject him and tell the other students what happened. Bill became an object of ridicule. He demanded that his parents remove him from Los Alamos and allow him to finish up his schooling back in St. Louis. He fled Los Alamos so quickly that he left behind his trunk of belongings and had to send for them. When Bill got his hands on the diary again, he read over the entries and burned with embarrassment. It put him off writing for many years. In 1932, Bill was accepted into Harvard to study English literature. Although a brilliant undergraduate at the most famous Ivy League school in the country, his knowledge of sex was rudimentary at best. Bill's friends were astonished and amused when he let slip that he thought babies were born through the navel. He was determined not to be made a fool of again by his peers. During the next summer break, Bill, aged 22, visited a brothel to lose his heterosexual virginity and fill this crucial gap in his knowledge. The experience at the brothel must have been positive because he returned to see the same girl again and again. But this didn't mean he was straight. Around this time, Bill also had sex with a young man from downtown Boston and caught syphilis. Bill remained a very withdrawn, defensive person. He kept a low profile, avoiding the elitist college social scenes to spend time alone in his dorm room reading books and playing with his secret pet ferret, Vashtar, and a .32 revolver. 
He narrowly escaped a lethal accident one night when he fired what he thought was the empty revolver at a friend and put a hole in the wall. Bill was deeply disliked by the Dawn's housemaster, and it's a miracle neither the gun incident nor the pet ferret got him expelled. Then again, he might not have been so cut up about it if he was expelled from Harvard. Bill later wrote, quote, I hated the university, and I hated the town it was in. Everything about the place was dead. The university was a fake English setup taken over by the graduates of fake English public schools. Despite the Harvard hatred, Bill hung on and eventually graduated with honors in 1936. He didn't search for a job immediately, and he didn't really need a job anyway, since his parents sent him a monthly allowance of $200, which he'd continue to receive until age 50. This equates to approximately $3,000 a month today. Bill bummed around the world for a year, visiting Paris, Budapest, Dubrovnik, and Vienna. In Vienna, he frequented the gay demi-monde, which he loved, and briefly studied medicine, which he hated. In 1937, he had an emergency operation for appendicitis and returned to Dubrovnik to recover, where he met Ilse Klapper, a monocle-wearing Jewish woman 15 years his senior. She had a sense of humor, and Bill liked her. He offered to marry her so she could immigrate to America and escape the impending Nazi threat across Europe. The ploy worked. Bill and Ilsa landed back on US soil and promptly separated, though they remained friends for many years after. Bill expected no reward for the marriage. He went through with it out of the kindness of his heart. Bill, now in his mid-twenties, was still at a loose end and searching for purpose. He enrolled to do graduate studies in psychology at Columbia, but, like medicine, found it to be a sterile subject dominated by statistics. He rarely showed up for class or completed the coursework. It was a futile endeavor. He was definitely better suited to the arts. In 1939, Bill bagged his first boyfriend, a bisexual hustler named Jack Anderson. But the relationship was sadomasochistic in nature and doomed from the start. Bill was forced to listen through the paper-thin walls of his New York City apartment as Jack smuggled strange men and women into their home and unashamedly carried out sexual affairs in the next room. The rocky coupling came to a bloody end when Bill, overwhelmed by jealousy and despair, cut off his pinky finger with a pair of shears and presented it to his psychiatrist, who promptly escorted him to the hospital. Bill thought he was being hospitalized for physical first aid, but his doctor had other plans. As Bill put it, quote, My analyst, the lousy bastard, shanghaied me into the nut house. He was admitted into the psychiatric ward at Bellevue, America's oldest public hospital with a checkered history, as rich in medical triumph as controversial experimentation and quackery. Years later, inspired by the incident and subsequent hospitalization, Bill turned out a short story called The Finger. 1942 brought Bill to Chicago where, while working as a pest exterminator, he caught up with a childhood friend from St. Louis named David Kemmerer, as well as David's much younger teenage companion, Lucien Carr. Though he grew close with both men, he was particularly entranced by Lucien. The following year, the threesome moved to New York, which in 1943 seemed like the center of the universe. 
Lucian enrolled as a student at Columbia and connected with Allen Ginsberg, the author featured on our previous episode, and Jack Kerouac. Lucian brought Bill and his two new friends together, and so the core members of the original Beat Generation were now complete. Allen Ginsberg remembered the first time he met Bill with great clarity. The older man was sprawled across the couch in Camera's apartment, and during the course of conversation, dropped a line from Shakespeare. Bill said, quote, "'Tis too starved a subject for my sword." Ginsberg was amazed. He had never heard Shakespeare quoted before in everyday conversation. In fact, the line was one of Bill's favourites, and he used it often. Ginsberg and Kerouac were fascinated with Bill. They considered him a sage and graceful man with a touch of the old world in his manner and fashion. He wore three-piece suits and spoke with a distinctive Missouri-bred deadpan drawl. Kerouac even went on to use Bill as inspiration for a character named Old Bull Lee in his famous 1957 book On the Road. Bill became a mentor for the Beats and introduced them to books by authors they'd never even heard of. In turn, they reignited his interest in writing. The only unwelcome member of the newly formed Simmering Friendship Group was David Kemmerer, whose obsession with Lucian was getting out of control. Bill was the only one who could tolerate David, somewhat due to their history and somewhat because he appreciated his intellect and found him better company on the whole than the magnetic but callow Lucian. One summer dawn in 1944, Bill was awoken by an urgent tapping on the door of his Greenwich Village apartment. It was Lucian. He was drunk, agitated, and incoherent. He handed over a bloodstained pack of Lucky Strike cigarettes, forced his way into the room, and relayed a garbled, drunken account of the previous night's events. Lucian confessed he'd murdered Camera by stabbing him to death and dumping his body in the Hudson River. Bill, still unsure whether or not to believe his panicked visitor, crumpled up the pack of cigarettes and flushed them down the toilet. He then told Lucian that if what he was saying was true, he ought to turn himself in and get a good lawyer. Lucian followed his advice, and after a quick trial and an acceptance of a plea deal, was sentenced to prison, where he served two years. In 1945, 31-year-old Bill moved in with Bernard graduate Joan Volmer, perhaps the only woman the Beat crew ever admired. The pair started out as roommates, but ended up as lovers, despite Bill's homosexuality. They connected on a psychological level. It was a common law marriage of the minds. Joan was known to be incredibly intelligent and charming, but like Bill, was a deeply troubled, self-destructive person. The new couple became more involved in drugs. Bill was partial to morphine and heroin, Joan preferred amphetamines and benzedrine. Kerouac and Ginsberg were interested in Bill's underworld experimentation, but did not follow him very far into it. They had rising writing careers to keep them busy. Joan, on the other hand, stayed right at Bill's side, working herself up to a benzedrine addiction that eventually landed her a stay in the psychiatric ward at Bellevue. But she wasn't a patient for long. Bill came to her rescue and they fled to a Times Square hotel room where they conceived their son, William Burroughs III. For the next several years, Bill and Joan lived a nomadic life, traveling the world, taking drugs and avoiding the law. Bill developed a particular fondness for Mexico City because of its minimal police intervention, lax gun control and cheap, accessible morphine. Furthermore, 
The monthly allowance he got from his parents allowed for a comfortable middle-class lifestyle, far more decadent than the offering back in New York. But all was not paradise. Bill and Joan's relationship was deteriorating, as his addictions intensified and her alcoholism worsened. Joan began sipping from a bottle of cheap tequila from as early as 8 in the morning. Add in Bill's dalliances with cheap young Mexican men, and you had a recipe for disaster. This is where we come to the most notorious, defining event of Bill's life. One September afternoon in 1951, Bill and Joan were at a party in a flat above a Mexico City bar. As usual, they were drinking, and as usual, Bill carried his gun. There are rumours that the couple had a history with performing a William Tell routine, whereby Joan would place an apple or a grapefruit on her head, and her skilled marksman husband would shoot it off. Whether or not they had done the act before, they decided to do the trick on this night, at this party. With all the room watching, Joan placed a highball glass atop her head and stood back. Bill raised his revolver, fired, and missed. His aim was an inch too low. The bullet struck 28-year-old Joan in the head, sending her to her grave and committing Bill to a lifelong nightmare of guilt and regret. Joan was buried in Mexico City. Bill was held in custody for almost two weeks, where he gave police several contradictory versions of events. He was released on bail when his older brother Mortimer came down to the capital and doled out thousands of dollars in legal fees and bribes to Mexican authorities. Before the case could go to trial, whereat Joan's death would be ruled a culpable homicide and Bill would be convicted of manslaughter in absentia, he skipped town, fleeing to Central America on the hunt for the fabled hallucinogen called Yage, also known as Ayahuasca. He yearned to escape the awful memory of what he had done back in Mexico. The ayahuasca trip was a success. Bill described the experience as a quote, insane, overwhelming rape of the senses. At some point during the expedition, perhaps feeling lonely now he was without a partner, Bill reached out in a letter to his old friend Allen Ginsberg, who happily replied. They hadn't seen one another for around six years, and so much had changed. The older mentor-pupil dynamic had been replaced by a more equal exchange of emotional and intellectual depth. They also both immensely enjoyed writing, and were happy for any excuse to test the limits of the written word and try out new literary techniques. Alan was so impressed by Bill's letter-writing abilities that he insisted Bill attempt to publish a novel. Bill had a distinctive and unique voice, which was a mixture of his Harvard classical education and 1940s junkie street slang. Sure, Bill thought, I'll give it a shot. So he started to compile bits and pieces from his letters to Alan and Kerouac, as well as his experiences as an addict and a small-time heroin pusher. Sometime in 1953, Bill returned to New York City with the intention of making the relationship with Alan official. They tried it out for a few weeks, Alan went to work as a copy boy during the days, leaving Bill to bum around, take drugs, and work on a manuscript. When Alan came home at night, the two of them would go over whatever drafts Bill had produced during the day, reviewing, editing, and exchanging ideas until after midnight. Alan helped Bill with his first publication in more ways than one. Not only did Alan help polish the actual words of the manuscript, 
He also helped secure a publishing deal. It wasn't a lucrative deal. Bill's take was only about $800 or $7,000 in today's money, but it was something. So the year before his 40th birthday, Bill published his first book, Junkie, a pulpy, semi-autobiographical paperback account of drug addiction. It was a debut that generated little interest. Unbeknownst to Bill, Alan was doing a little writing of his own. He'd been writing distressed letters to their mutual friends Jack Kerouac and Neil Cassidy, detailing the disturbing emotional intensity of his, quote, psychic marriage. Bill was demanding and possessive, and seemed to see his younger lover as some kind of cure for his misery and loneliness. He pressured Alan for ever more exclusive commitment. Alan tried to let Bill down easy. He could never love Bill the way Bill needed to be loved. But the more he pulled away, the tighter Bill clung on. He wasn't getting the hint, not even when Alan kept seeing girls on the side. Things came to a head when Bill tried to persuade Alan to move with him to Tangier in Morocco. Alan panicked. The idea of the relationship continuing indefinitely terrified him. Alan turned on Bill and blurted out what he'd been trying to convey for weeks. He said, quote, I don't want your ugly old cock. As soon as he spoke, he wished he could take it back. Bill was shattered. Alan later wrote, quote, I ever regret the wound I dealt his heart. Rejected, Bill packed his bags and set sail alone across the Atlantic. The strength of his and Ginsburg's friendship somehow survived the breakup, and the two men kept in touch for the rest of their lives. When Bill arrived in Tangier in January 1954, he found a city awash with the kind of bohemian laissez-faire of which he had only dreamt. It was almost sinister in its hedonism. Hashish was smoked on street corners, hard drugs were sold over the counter, police presence was low, and homosexuality carried no taboo. Bill wrote to Alan, quote, There is an end-of-the-world feeling in Tangier, with its glut of nylon shirts, Swiss watches, scotch, and sex and opiates. A large expat community had sprung up there, and Bill was its newest member. He moved into a room above a brothel and started an affair with a Spanish boy named Kiki, who was a prostitute working there. Kiki introduced him to a new drug called Eucadol, a synthetic opiate now known as oxycodone, developed in Germany in 1916. It's the pharmacological cousin of heroin with a strong euphoric component. It also happened to be Hitler's favorite drug. Bill described the experience of using the drug Eucadol, writing, quote, Eucadol is like a combination of junk and cocaine. Trust the Germans to concoct some really evil shit. When Bill wasn't shooting drugs into his veins, he was reading books, cooking, cleaning his gun, and exploring the city. But two days after he turned 40, he felt an urge to do something productive with his time. He smoked some hashish, sat down, and picked up a pen. When he started to write, he couldn't stop. He wrote furiously, filling up whole pages, then throwing them over his shoulder onto the floor. Bill said, quote, Out it comes, all in one piece, like a glob of spit. The exotic city might have unleashed his creativity, but the availability of drugs on offer were incapacitating him all the more. At his worst, Bill was shooting up 
every two hours. Neighbours heard him laughing hysterically while alone in his room. He claimed he could sit and stare at his toes for as long as eight hours, doing nothing else. He rarely bathed, and although he was still receiving money from his family trust fund, his drug habit was driving him to poverty. In 1955, Bill borrowed another sum of cash from his parents, flew to London, checked into a clinic and underwent what is known as the apomorphine cure. He emerged from rehabilitation a new man and stayed mostly clean for the rest of his life. Mostly being the operative word. When he returned to Tangier, he committed himself to a strict regimen of exercise, healthy foods and consistent writing. The pages he filled were the workings for what was to become his most famous novel, Naked Lunch. Toward the end of the 50s, when Bill himself was nearing 50, Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg came to visit him in Morocco. They knew Bill was working on something like a manuscript and wanted to lend a hand. They had read excerpts Bill provided through letters and thought they recognised what could be a groundbreaking work of literature, a cultural landmark. They were right. Naked Lunch was first published in 1959 in Paris. It was to be Bill's most famous work or most infamous work, depending on which side of the critical and moral divide you stand. Fun fact, the title was a lucky mistake made by Jack Kerouac, who misread the original title, Naked Lust. Unlike his previous and modestly successful novel, Junkie, which is a pretty straightforward narrative, Naked Lunch is a plotless, fractured, taboo-breaking account of drug addiction written in an experimental stream of consciousness style it follows a protagonist, loosely based on Bill himself, through a surreal, orgiastic wasteland of drugs, depravity, political plots, paranoia, and sadistic medical experiments. The French didn't pay much attention to Naked Lunch when it turned up on bookshop shelves, but the response to its US publication in 1961 was explosive and provoked a series of obscenity trials in Boston and Los Angeles. The book was ruled offensive. Authors Norman Mailer and Allen Ginsberg threw their support behind Bill and testified to the book's artistic and social value in an appeal which led to the court overturning the original decision. As if the obscenity trials weren't enough to put Naked Lunch and its eccentric author on the map, Allen Ginsberg seized every chance he got to publicize his gentleman junkie friend. Bill became a notorious literary celebrity lovingly embraced by young New Wavers as the godfather of counterculture. And Bill liked his growing fame. He cultivated an entourage of young admirers who replaced his aging contemporaries. He was invited to perform readings, usually to full houses. One of his most significant readings took place in 1981, when he appeared on Saturday Night Live and read lines from his absurdist narrative to a nervously laughing audience. The hospital lavatory's been locked for three hours solid. I think they're using it as an operating room. Nurse, I can't find her pulse, doctor. Dr. Benway, cardiac arrest. He looks around and picks up a toilet plunger. He advances on the patient. Make an incision, Dr. Limpy says to his appalled assistant, I'm going to massage the heart. In 1965, after spending some time in Paris, Bill moved to London, then New York, 
and finally to Lawrence, Kansas, which is where he would live out his remaining years. He took up painting, which really only involved him shooting a shotgun at spray paint cans placed before blank canvas to get a violent splattering of dark colours. One of Bill's last collaborations was with none other than Nirvana's Kurt Cobain. Bill was one of Cobain's idols. When the two men finally met in 1993, Cobain was incredibly nervous. But they got to talking and soon felt at ease in each other's company. They exchanged gifts. Bill gave Cobain one of his paintings, while Cobain gave Bill a signed biography about the black blues and folk singer Lead Belly. Supposedly, the topic of drugs never came up, although both creatives were held up by 1990s youth as heroin heroes. When the day ended, the men shook hands and parted ways. Six months later, Cobain was dead. On hearing the news of Cobain's suicide, Bill said, quote, The thing I remember about him is the deathly gray complexion of his cheeks. As far as I was concerned, he was dead already. Bill himself died on August 2nd, 1997, from complications of a heart attack. He was one of the last true links to the original Beat Generation, having outlived Jack Kerouac, Neil Cassidy, and Allen Ginsberg. He even outlived his only son, William S. Burroughs III, the son he'd had with Joan Volmer. Billy, as he was known, had died back in 1981 at age 33 from cirrhosis of the liver. It was a tragic but not unexpected death. Billy was a heavy drinking drug addict, like father, like son. Bill was buried alongside his son and his grandfather, the famous inventor, in St. Louis. He had spent 83 years bouncing around the globe and stirring up trouble, but circled back home for the final journey. Middle America was where William S. Burroughs' life began and ended. Burroughs' legend is set to see a popular media resurgence with the release of a film about the author's life. In May 2019, Variety magazine announced Ben Foster had signed on to play Bill and Kristen Stewart will play Joan Volmer. The following extract comes from the first chapter of Junkie. The narrator, William Lee, reveals how he first came in contact with opioids. My first experience with junk was during the war, about 1944 or 1945. I had made the acquaintance of a man named Norton, who was working in a shipyard at the time. Norton, whose real name was Morelli or something like that, had been discharged from the peacetime army for forging a paycheck, and was classified 4F for reasons of bad character. He looked like George Raft, but was taller. Norton was trying to improve his English and achieve a smooth, affable manner. Affability, however, did not come natural to him. In repose, his expressions were sullen and mean, and you knew he always had that mean look when you turned your back. Norton was a hard-working thief, and he did not feel right unless he stole something every day from the shipyard where he worked. A tool, some canned goods, a pair of overalls, anything at all. One day he called me up and said he had stolen a Tommy gun. Could I find someone to buy it? I said, maybe, bring it over. The housing shortage was getting underway. I paid $15 a week, for a dirty apartment that opened onto a companionway and never got any sunlight. 
The wallpaper was flaking off because the radiator leaked steam when there was any steam in it to leak. I had the windows sealed shut with a caulking of newspapers against the cold. The place was full of roaches and occasionally I killed a bedbug. I was sitting by the radiator, a little damp from the steam, when I heard Norton's knock. I opened the door and there he was, standing in the dark hall with a big parcel wrapped in brown paper under his arm. He smiled and said, Hello. I said, Come in, Norton, and take off your coat. He unwrapped the Tommy gun and we assembled it and snapped the firing pin. I said I would find someone to buy it. Norton said, Oh, here's something else I picked up. It was a flat yellow box with five one-half grain serrets of morphine tartrate. This is just a sample, he said, indicating the morphine. I've got 15 of these boxes at home, and I can get more if you get rid of these. I said, I'll see what I can do. A child of the Great Depression, Hubert Selby Jr. was born on July 23, 1928, in the dilapidated Bay Ridge area of Brooklyn, New York. From the moment he entered the world, he was in a struggle for his life. He was born with the umbilical cord wrapped around his neck, strangling him, cutting off his air and circulation. He was blue all over from cyanosis, a condition caused by inadequate oxygenation of the blood. His head was twisted and out of shape, and he had suffered slight brain damage. In interviews later in his life, Hubert Selby Jr. said, quote, they had to drag me screaming into the 20th century. I've been defiant ever since. Hubert Selby Jr.'s father was also named Hubert. He was a coal miner turned merchant seaman originally from Kentucky, who settled in Brooklyn when he met and married Adeline, Hubert Selby Jr.'s mother. The family of three was reasonably well off, but Hubert Sr.'s maritime career meant he was away at sea for many long, laborious weeks at a time, and when he was home, he liked to drink. This didn't mix well with his hot temper. Hubert Jr. was raised primarily by his mother, and though she was a strict disciplinarian, he was far closer to her than he ever was to his father. Adeline Selby was a homemaker who gave birth to her first and only son when she was just 18. She was a devout Christian who taught Sunday school and sang in the church choir. The Selbys moved around a lot, hopping between rentals across the hard scrabble industrial annex north of Bay Ridge. Not long after Hubert Jr.'s birth, his father traded in his merchant seaman gig to work as a superintendent for the apartment block in which they lived. This afforded him more time with his young family and lessened the strain on his marriage. Hubert Jr. grew up playing with other kids on the streets of his neighborhood and attended the Bayview Public School where he acquired a lifelong friend named Gilbert Sorrentino and a lifelong nickname, Cubby. Cubby Selby hated the name Hubert. He thought it was a sissy sounding name that would eventually earn him a punch in the face. He wanted to sound tough and urban and slick, like any one of the Mickeys or Joeys or Vinnies that haunted the local streets. So he went with Cubby, a moniker thought to have originated from his parents because he was the cub, the junior to his father's senior. Cubby and his friends often skipped school and hung out along the 8th Avenue, frequenting the pool halls and getting to know the local petty thieves and delinquents. They also snuck into bars and bought beer and watched up-and-coming jazz musicians like Billie Holiday and Charlie Parker. Cubby must have been somewhat academic, in spite of the lack of information available about his school years, 
because he was accepted into the Peter Stuyvesant High School, a specialised college preparatory school for students capable of passing the entrance examination. But Cubby had no interest in riding the academic conveyor belt through to college. Much to his parents' disappointment, the 15-year-old dropped out of 8th grade, forged his birth certificate and enlisted as an oiler with the Merchant Marines. He'd grown up listening to his father's stories about his time at sea during the First World War, and now, with the Second World War raging on, Cubby wandered in. He spent two years drinking and womanising his way across Europe. Cubby was a rather handsome young man now. He looked sort of like Frank Sinatra, with his kind blue eyes and prominent widow's peak, and he spoke in a tough, Joe Pesci way. He loved life on the sea, the routine of sailing, then coming into port and getting drunk and going back out to sea again, but he would pay a hefty price for it. At the tail end of the war, Cubby was working on a freighter that was transporting cattle to troops. It was soon discovered the cattle were infected with the bacterium that causes tuberculosis in humans. The cattle were thrown overboard, but it was already too late. The unsanitary, crowded conditions aboard were a perfect breeding ground for the already highly contagious disease, which ripped through the crew and left few survivors in its wake. Cubby fell violently ill. His decline was swift. Once youthful, athletic and seaworthy, Cubby degenerated into a pale, weak invalid. He lost his appetite and lost weight. He suffered from chest pain and fevers, and he was coughing up blood. When the ship docked at Bremen, a major port in northwestern Germany, Cubby was on the brink of death. He was diagnosed with advanced tuberculosis, sent home to New York, admitted to a sanatorium, and given three months to live. He had just turned 18. But Cubby didn't die. In true Brooklyn style, when doctors handed him the three-month death sentence, Cubby thought to himself, quote, Fuck you. No one tells me what to do. Three months turned into three and a half years on the tuberculosis ward, with Cubby clinging to life as doctors struggled to get his disease under control through painful surgical procedures. He had 10 ribs removed, suffered a collapsed lung, and had a portion of the other lung extracted. But he didn't lose his dark sense of humour. Following the rib removal, Cubby asked doctors if he could keep them so he could turn them into letter openers and gift them to his friends. Along with the surgeries, Cubby was made to take a complex cocktail of drugs, including an experimental antibiotic called streptomycin, which his desperate mother bought off the black market. Adeline Selby smuggled the drug into the hospital so doctors could administer it to her sick son. Though Cubby later stated he felt the drugs helped, he admitted the side effects were brutal. They petrified his muscles, ruined his balance, affected his eyesight and muddled his brain. Streptomycin was in fact so toxic, it could turn grass blue. But he later credited streptomycin as one of the reasons why he managed to survive when the rest of his hospital ward died. Though his body was wasting away, Cubby tried to keep his mind active. Sitting up in the hospital bed, he read book after book after book, mostly detective novels, and wrote letters every day to family and friends. 
He was hesitant to make friends with the patients in the beds around him because he knew that by the next morning, they could be dead. One day, a Greek kid on Cubby's ward went into surgery and never came out. A family member came by to pack up the kid's things. The man saw Cubby writing and asked him if he would be so kind as to write a letter to the dead boy's family, informing them of the death. Cubby reluctantly accepted. He scrolled out a few sentences, explaining to the boy's parents how brave the boy had been and what a good friend he was to the other patients. A few days later, Cubby received a note of gratitude in return. The parents stated his kind words had brought them comfort in a time of sorrow. For the first time, Cubby considered his abilities as a writer. In 1950, Cubby was discharged from hospital. He was cured of tuberculosis, but asthma and other respiratory problems remained. He was also addicted to medication, most notably morphine. But 22-year-old Cubby felt a renewed sense of drive. He did not want to face death down again without having done something meaningful with his life. He set out on a search for purpose. He completed a secretarial course, took up a few different odd jobs such as copywriting, then settled into a position as an insurance analyst for a period. While working for the insurance agency, he met someone who told him heroin was in the same family as morphine, but much easier to obtain. So Cubby switched to heroin. He met and married his first wife, Inez Taylor, in 1953, but Cubby couldn't be a provider for his family in the traditional sense. His health was unstable, therefore he couldn't hold down a career, and after the birth of their first child, Claudia, it was Cubby who stayed home with the baby on a disability pension while Inez returned to work at a department store. It's speculated this put a strain on their marriage. Cubby and Inez ended up getting a divorce after seven years of marriage. During the mid-50s, Cubby fell into a group of young rebel writers through his best friend Gilbert Sorrentino, who had founded his own literary magazine and connected with the likes of Leroy Jones, Joel Oppenheimer, Frank O'Hara, Allen Ginsberg, and Robert Creeley. Cubby tried to immerse himself in this Greenwich Village art scene. He certainly felt drawn to it, but he was still weighed down by a grudge he had carried since his TB diagnosis. He was enraged with the card he'd been dealt in life, hateful of his sick, deformed body. Cubby said, quote, To the best of my ability, I directed all my rage and anger toward God because that was the son of a bitch who did this to me. He divided his time between Sorrentino's literary crowd and a less upstanding mob of hoodlums down at the Brooklyn waterfront, a violent and profane subterranean world where he could drink and shoot up heroin and act out his hostilities and resentments among fellow tramps and vagabonds. But Sorrentino continued to encourage his chronically ill friend to write, advising Cubby to channel his rage into something more productive. So, Cubby took one of his disability pension checks and went and bought himself a typewriter. With his frail health and lack of formal education and no other way of making a meaningful living, Cubby thought, quote, I knew the alphabet. Maybe I could be a writer. Cubby and his family moved into a house behind a barber shop. It had a backyard as big as a handkerchief, with just enough space to fit a table and chair. This would be Cubby's office. For the next few years, he would sit outside at the typewriter and teach himself to write. He began by typing out the books of other authors he admired, in order to learn how it all worked. 
sort of like taking apart a car to see how it drives. Once he built up some confidence, he began working on his own story, something called The Queen is Dead, which evolved, after six years, into his first novel Last Exit to Brooklyn. Last Exit was a series of loosely connected tales about a Brooklyn housing project in the 1950s populated by prostitutes, street thugs, queers, transvestites, and union workers. Cubby passed his manuscript around to Sorrentino and his fellow writer friends. Leroy Jones was so impressed by his work, he put Cubby in contact with Jack Kerouac's literary agent. Cubby sent the agent his manuscript, and a few days later got a call. The agent said, quote, You and me? I think we can make some money from this. Last Exit was published in 1964 by Grove Press, a relatively new press that had previously published other controversial works by Henry Miller and William S. Burroughs. Sorrentino was working for Grove by then. He edited Last Exit, and Cubby dedicated the book to him. Last Exit was an instant success. It sent shockwaves through the literary world with its raw, vibrant language and startling revelations of New York's underbelly. It was a unique book with a style no one had quite seen before, namely because it defied all the conventional rules of writing and grammar. Cubby broke the rules to better describe the rhythm of the street, but he did it consistently and with purpose. For example, Cubby refused to crowd his writing with what he saw as unnecessary punctuation, such as apostrophes in words like don't and wouldn't, which were still readable without an apostrophe. And when an apostrophe really was needed, he used a backslash instead. The reason he did this, he later confirmed, is that on his old typewriter, the slash key was closer than the apostrophe, so it was easier to use instead. He also liked to misspell words, incorporate street slang, write in shouty capital letters, and drag out sentences until they ran the length of the page. Throwing away the rule books and style guides was a gamble, for Cubby and for his publisher. But the gamble paid off. Last Exit went on to sell 60 million copies by the time the 21st century rolled around. Flush with money and celebrity, 36-year-old Cubby plunged headfirst into narcotics and booze. His casual drinking and drug use turned into full-blown alcoholism and addiction. He once told the Times, quote, I've always been an alcoholic. I can't remember when I didn't want to drink. With money coming in, I had the means to pursue my disease with exuberance. Cubby was intimidated and anxious of his sudden fame and the onslaught of both positive and negative publicity. He turned to a chemical remedy Whenever friends would come to visit Cubby in the wake of his publishing debut, they'd find him with a drink in his hand or a needle in his arm, surrounded by fellow junkies who only knew Cubby through their shared dependence on heroin. In 1966, Last Exit was the subject of a very high-profile obscenity trial in London. It was the biggest literary trial since Lady Chatterley's Lover. It all began when the same publisher, who had brought the work of William S. Burroughs to England, John Calder, decided to print Last Exit, which he recognised was a, quote, dangerous book, but a book with strong moral force behind it. The moment Last Exit hit the shelves, it was attacked by a puritanical group that claimed to have been, quote, depraved by the shocking stories within. The jury deliberated for two hours, then found against John Calder and his partners, who were fined a small amount. 
but they refused to lie down and accept the verdict. They appealed over and over again, bringing their company to the brink of bankruptcy, before the conviction was finally quashed in 1968 in the Court of Appeals, in a decision that is credited for effectively ending literature censorship in Britain. John Calder and his company won in more ways than one. The trial actually brought John Calder's publishing company greater fame than it ever would have done had it not been prosecuted in the first place. And now, Hubert Selby Jr. was an international literary star. While the trial was going on, Cubby was facing down his own problems. He had a brief second marriage with a woman named Judith Lumino, followed by a quickie divorce. Narcotics and booze had a devastating effect on Cubby's life. Shooting dope and drinking soon led to empty, massive, and unstoppable misery. All the money he made from Last Exit was funneled into his veins. He was too mentally and physically ill to work and wound up on welfare for a spell. One of his close friends said that when he visited Cubby after Last Exit, Cubby was living in a crummy little apartment. When he was asked why he was living in such poor conditions after producing a hit novel, Cubby said, quote, Wanna see $60,000? And he pointed to the track marks in his arms. In an attempt to escape his problems and remove himself from the Brooklyn drug scene, Cubby fled to Los Angeles, California. Of course, this didn't work. Cubby simply fell in with the Los Angeles drug scene. Before he left the East Coast, he'd asked his literary agent back in New York to send him a monthly allowance. Enough to live off, but not enough to buy narcotics. However, the agent soon found herself in an awkward situation when Cubby called her up from LA, demanding all his money be sent over. She protested, saying, quote, But Cubby, you told me I wasn't to send you more than your allowance. He replied, quote, I don't care what I told you. Send me all the money. The agent knew what he was going to use the funds for, but it was his money, and there was nothing she could do about it. Cubby hit rock bottom in 1967, when he was arrested for heroin possession. He was thrown in the LA County lockup for two months and forced into an involuntary withdrawal. Strapped to a cot in a cold cell, he suffered through all the psychological and physical symptoms of withdrawal, which addicts compare to a sustained case of the flu. Fevers, chills, night sweats, stomach pain and nausea, muscle spasms, nightmares and depression. He was released only to be locked up again in solitary confinement at a mental hospital for attempting suicide. When he was hospitalized, a fellow patient on the same ward was famous jazz pianist Bud Powell. Cubby later spoke about how Bud Powell would sit in his room with a plank of wood across his knees and play the wood like it was a piano. It was a depressing sight for Cubby. Four months later, Cubby emerged from hospital a clean man. He intended to stay that way. He would next kick his alcohol dependence. He joined AA and, through his sponsor, was introduced to a woman named Suzanne Shaw. The night they met, Cubby asked her to marry him. He continued asking her for two years. Finally, on Boxing Day in 1969, Cubby and Suzanne tied the knot. Cubby was 41 and his new bride was 24, but he told anyone who'd listen she was the love of his life. They had two children together, daughter Rachel and son William. 
1971, Cubby published what he referred to as the most disturbing work he'd ever written. The Room is an exploration of the unhinged mind of a psychopath locked in a cell, with nothing better to do than reflect on his violent past and fantasize about future opportunities to enact revenge against those who imprisoned him. Cubby explained that accessing the darker parts of his mind in order to write The Room was actually easier now that he was sober. He said, quote, Once you get off the dope and the alcohol, that's when you realize how really dark you are because there's no buffer between the darkness and you. Throughout the 1970s, Cubby went on to publish The Demon, about a womanizer whose attempts at self-restraint spiral into madness and murder, and Requiem for a Dream, a heartbreaking tale about four characters trapped by their addictions and pursuits for pleasure. All three books were received remarkably well, but due to lack of marketing, none of them created a sensation quite like Last Exit. The money he made was hardly enough to scrape by, he went to work for a time at a garage, pumping gas and changing engine oil. A better job came about when he was offered a teaching post at the University of Southern California, which he held onto for the rest of his life. He never finished high school and he never went to college, but now he was a college professor taking a fiction workshop. The head of the writing department, Dr. James Reagan, one day received a phone call from a man who said, quote, Hi, my name's Cubby Selby and I'm wondering if I could be any use to you down there at USC. Reagan began to give the caller his usual spiel about sending in a resume and so on, then suddenly stopped dead. A realization dawned on him. Reagan said, quote, Just a second. Is this Hubert Selby Jr.? Cubby confirmed it was. Dr. Reagan hired him instantly. The classes introduced Cubby to a whole new generation of young writers, who even today speak fondly of their time under the Brooklyners' tutelage. He encouraged them to ignore all rules of writing and follow their own gut instincts. He was humble and honest and genuinely interested in what his students were working on. He was famously supportive. When his students received rejection letters for the stories they sent out, he'd say, quote, Fuck that guy. That's just one person. Outside the USC, Cubby was undergoing a mainstream revival with the adaptation of two of his books to the big screen, which bookended either side of the 1990s. The first was Last Exit to Brooklyn, released in 1989, starring Jennifer Jason Leigh, Stephen Lang, Stephen Baldwin, and Sam Rockwell. Then came Requiem for a Dream in 2000, directed by Darren Aronofsky and starring Ellen Burstyn, Jared Leto, Jennifer Connelly. It received a standing ovation at Cannes Film Festival. Cubby was heavily involved in the making of both films and spent a lot of time on set. He actually co-wrote the screenplay for Requiem for a Dream. He'd already written much of the script before Darren Aronofsky even approached him to make the film. Cubby made a cameo appearance playing a mean old prison guard taunting one of the lead characters. You don't feel so hip slick and cool right now, do you, man? <laughs> Cubby popped up in other less expected forms of pop culture too. For example, in 1993, The Simpsons aired an episode called Last Exit to Springfield, where Homer leads his fellow power plant workers to strike, just as Cubby's lead character had done in his first novel. Homer! 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 I move that Homer Simpson be our new union president! All in favor! Aye! All opposed? Nee. Congratulations, Homer! Yay! At this time, Cubby met Henry Rollins, 
the glowering, head-banging lead singer of the punk rock band Black Flag, who literally tracked Cubby down in the phone book and cold-called him. Cubby invited Henry Rollins over to his house, and the two became good friends. In a move reminiscent of the Kurt Cobain-Bill Burroughs collaboration, Rollins and Hubert Selby Jr. collaborated on a couple of spoken word albums. They toured Europe together, giving readings. Rollins was amazed at how Cubby could go about almost unrecognised in America, but in Europe, where controversial artists tend to be welcomed, fans swarmed about him, paying him the respect and admiration he never really got in his home country. On April 26, 2004, at the age of 75, Hubert Selby Jr., by now dependent on a cane and oxygen tank, finally succumbed to the lung disease that had been trying to kill him since he was a teenager. Almost 500 people attended the memorial service held in Hollywood, including Henry Rollins, Darren Aronofsky, Cubby's USC students, and all four Selby children. He was remembered as a sparkling, witty, and cackling character, a truly great American writer of gospel and speaker of profanities. The following extract is from the first chapter of Last Exit to Brooklyn. It examines a group of unemployed young men who resort to casual violence to escape the boredom of everyday life. While hanging outside a Brooklyn bar called Greeks one night, chatting about cars and girls, the conversation degenerates into a brutal fighting game called Mum. They watch the cars pass, giving hard looks and spitting, and who laid this broad and who laid that one? And someone took a small brush from his pocket, and cleaned his suede shoes, then rubbed his hands and adjusted his clothing, and someone else flipped a coin, and when it dropped, a foot stamped on it before it could be picked up. And as he moved the leg from the coin, his hair was mussed, and he called him a fuck and whipped out his comb, and when his hair was once more neatly in place, it was mussed again, and he got salty as hell, and the other guys laughed and someone else's hair was mussed and they shoved each other, and someone else shoved and then someone suggested a game of mum, and said Vinny should start, and they yelled yeah, and Vinny said what the fuck, he'd start, and they formed a circle around him, and he turned slowly, jerking his head, quickly trying to catch the one punching him, so he would replace him in the centre, and he was hit in the side, and when he turned, he got hit again, and as he spun around, two fists hit him in the back, then another in the kidney, and he buckled, and they laughed, and he jerked around and caught a shot in the stomach, and fell, but he pointed, and he left the centre, and just stood for a minute in the circle, catching his wind, and then started punching, and felt better when he hit Tony a good shot in the kidney without being seen, and Tony slowed down and got pelted for a few minutes, then finally pointed, and Harry said he was full of shit. He didn't really see him hit him. But he was thrown in the centre anyway, and Tony waited and hooked him hard in the ribs. And the game continued for another five minutes or so, and Harry was still in the centre, panting and almost on his knees. And they were wrapping him pretty much as they pleased. But they got bored, and the game broke up, and they went back into the Greeks. Harry still bent and panting, the others laughing, and went to the lavatory to wash. Thanks for listening to Hollyword. This episode was written, narrated, and edited by me, Key Whiskey. Special thanks to my guest Jared Doyle for voicing William S. Burroughs and Hubert Selby Jr. Please visit our website, hollywordpodcast.com, to find show notes, a list of sources, and more information. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, subscribe, and spread the word. Join me next time for another dive into the lives of history's greatest storytellers.
Good night.